Welcome to the Human Data Era, special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. By studying human genetics, scientists discovered mechanisms that, when defective, cause disease. While this type of data is powerful, additional information can provide more insight on the human condition. Researchers and clinicians can now go beyond genetics, combining proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and environmental factors into a broad category of human data. In the series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the potential of human data and the important transition scientists and clinicians are making to incorporate this wealth of information into drug research and development. Biobanks that house data from electronic health records or collect samples directly from participants are precious resources for researchers looking to understand health and disease and translate these discoveries into recommendations and treatments for patients. In this episode, I talk to Dr. Nancy Cox, professor and director of the Vanderbilt Genetics Institute, about Vanderbilt's DNA Biobank, BioVU or BioView. Dr. Cox and her fellow researchers use computational genetics to study the de-identified patient DNA stored in BioView along with corresponding electronic health records in order to discover links between genes and disease. Hello, Dr. Cox. Welcome. What drew you to become a researcher focused on human genetics? Thank you. I was among the few high school students of my era who actually had genetics in high school, and I never wanted to do anything else. In college, I worked in mosquito genetics at the University of Notre Dame in the third graduating class of women, and then went to Yale in human genetics to get my PhD. I was looking at your CV, and I noticed that you started your independent academic career back in the late 1980s at the University of Chicago. One of our other guests in this podcast series, Dr. Cowdy Stefanson, who's now at Decode Genetics in Iceland, he was also at the University of Chicago, I think around the same time. And I was curious, did you overlap with Dr. Stefanson in Chicago? I did. I didn't know him well, but I certainly knew of him. And I knew him a lot better afterwards since he was into genetics. And their director of statistical genetics for a long time, Augie Kong, was a close colleague of mine at the University of Chicago. So much has happened in human genetics research over the past 30 years. What was it like doing human genetics research back when you first started your lab versus today? What's the single biggest difference that comes to your mind? The biggest difference is compute power. All of the sequencing that we do now wouldn't be possible without immense storage capacity, immense analytic capacity for all the data. And while the changes in the cost of sequencing are relatively new and a real driver of technology, unquestionably, the change in compute power has been a huge engine for genetics research. Let's fast forward to you moving to Vanderbilt 
to start the Genetics Institute, the VGI, in 2015. Can you tell us a little bit more about VGI and what's your vision for it? Genetics belongs in medicine at all levels. So the vision was a way to run towards that faster using the biobank. A key point of our biobank is that the phenotypic data comes as electronic health records. So we make our discoveries in the same medium in which we want to do translation. That's a huge advantage. Electronic health records are not research quality information, but if we can't detect our genetic signals in these data, if we can't use these data for discovery, we won't be able to use them for translation. We have fantastic tools for really being able to use electronic health records for research purposes and to very effectively treat patients and use genetic information in that context. So Nancy, there's a number of these biobanks now that have been or being set up all around the world. How do you differentiate what you're doing at BioView from what's happening elsewhere? There are two kinds of biobanks. Biobanks that use electronic health records and biobanks that collect information from subjects as they enter and sometimes along the way. Many are inventories or relatively straightforward and inexpensive laboratory tests that can be measured. We have up to 30 plus years of healthcare information on our subjects. Vanderbilt built their own electronic health records more than 30 years ago. So we have this longitudinal record. I think the the biobanks that collect information more directly from their subjects have the opportunity to ask other kinds of questions. So I see the biobanks as fairly complementary. A key thing is how healthy the subjects are. Vanderbilt is a tertiary care medical center. Patients drive hours and hours to be here for their medical care. So we overrepresent rare and complicated diseases as a consequence. Whereas something like the UK Biobank was an unusually healthy cohort, ages 49 to 65 when ascertained, as a very different cohort in terms of their health and well-being than a population that is largely here for medical care. In addition, every test that gets ordered from subjects in our biobank is ordered for a reason. They do a battery of tests at the very beginning in the UK biobank for the purposes of collecting data. But we have thousands of laboratory values that are measured in our patients. But every one of those tests was ordered because some physician had some suspicion that they needed this test to follow up. Again, that's why I think these are all complementary pieces of information. We certainly use the UK Biobank extensively. We collaborate through the Emerge Network with many other US-based healthcare delivery hospitals and medical centers to replicate each other's studies. So there are lots of opportunities to go across the biobanks for maximum utility. So your biobank, BioView, has about 275,000 DNA samples from patients. How big is big enough? Do you see BioView continuing to grow further? Is there a point at which the law of diminishing returns starts to kick in? We haven't found it yet. In studies in genetics, especially in the common disease space, but also in the rare disease space, the more 
people that we have, the better we do. And the nuances matter. It's now about using what we're discovering to improve our understanding of the biology that drives disease. One of the things we're learning more about is pleiotropy, the way that genetic variation can lead to increased risk for many different phenotypes. The more samples we have, the deeper our data, the more we're empowered to learn those kinds of things that can matter a lot in how we understand the ways that genetics can influence disease risk. It's really just a harbinger of what things will be like when every medical center has genetics on its subjects, because then every place is a biobank. The more we learn how to use these data well now, the better the quality of our inferences will be when every medical center is its own biobank. We have many things to learn. We can make new discoveries, try out translation in silico to really see how things will work. There's a number of different nationally rooted biobanks, UK Biobank, Estonia, Decogenetics, which has the DNA sequence information on the Icelandic population. Some critics out there have noted that some of these biobanks are biased and that they draw from a very specific population. They may not accurately portray how a genetic variant might influence a specific disease process in different genetic backgrounds. So you might have a variant and that might play out differently in an Icelandic individual from an Asian individual. How do you think about population diversity and how it relates to biobanks? This is rooted in the fact that the governments that have funded most collections related to genetics have been for European ancestry populations. But of course, it's critical to understand genetics for the world. It is our heritage. It's a matter of catching up because so many of our largest genetic studies were rooted in cohort studies that started a long time ago. There have been really good efforts over the last five years to do a better job of representing the world's populations in genetic studies. There's a lot more investment in Africa, South America, Central America by their governments, by world health organizations as well. I'm very heartened how much NIH has really been willing to invest in collection of population samples from additional parts of the world. I think that's a good investment for all of us. It's all part of a really important effort to make sure that we capture the diversity of all populations as we learn how to understand how genetics affects risk of disease. Another important topic that animates people when thinking about human data and biobanks is the issue of privacy. For example, can you link somebody's human genetic information to their name? And might this be used against them in some way by insurance companies and so forth? How does privacy affect what you do? We need to divide the privacy issue into several buckets. There are legitimate concerns that people have about the ways their data get used that need to be addressed transparently when doing research with specimens from patients in a hospital, 
with their electronic health record data. People who come to Vanderbilt for their health care have to sign a consent that indicates that they find it acceptable that Vanderbilt would use their electronic health record data, leftover biological specimens to create genetic information, to do research, to improve our understanding of disease and ultimately our ability to care for patients in our healthcare settings. I think that's separate from the legal issues around privacy. The European Union, for example, has very strict rules. And if we participate in research projects with people from Europe, we have to abide by those rules. I think the opportunities for new medicines, a much accelerated understanding of disease processes when we understand the genetics is coming quickly. People have to be willing to participate in order to make sure that their genetic information is well represented and we understand the information from everyone. The consequences of failing to do that will create more genetic-based health disparities that no one wants to see, but is a risk if whole groups for privacy reasons, decide not to participate in genetic research. Okay, now I'd like to zoom in here to help our listeners connect the dots. Can you walk me through a specific example of how you or some of the researchers at Vanderbilt have used the resources of BioView to make advances that are directly relevant to human health? One of the young faculty that I recruited to Vanderbilt as part of my vision for expanding genetics and genomics in the healthcare setting, has developed an algorithm based on people who underwent genetic testing here, using only these subjects that had a genetic test ordered for them, to then identify other people with all of those same phenotypic characteristics that could benefit from genetic testing as well. Within our own healthcare system, there are thousands of individuals who are quite similar in terms of the phenotypes. And so we can apply that algorithm to identify people who would benefit from genetic testing. These algorithms are built just off of diagnostic codes, the billing codes that every hospital uses, so that it's possible to apply them in community health settings. Can you give a sneak preview of something going on in your research group right now that you're super excited about? We're very excited about learning more of the biology under disease. And one of the ways that we're trying to do that is to probe the biology of things that we know something about the genetics level, combining genetic variation within a biological pathway so that we understand all of the medical disease consequences that arise from, for example, disruption in TGF-beta signaling or disruption in the GABAergic pathway. We're really trying to combine the large-scale data that we have in the biobank and phenotypic information to understand those central pathways. There have been some recent papers with very clever approaches to identifying drugs for 
repurposing or multi-purposing using large-scale genetically predicted transcriptomics. This idea is that we, we try to understand how any given disease seems to be arising as a consequence of more subtle changes, not so much changes in the proteins that people have, but rather changes in the amount of protein, the timing of the production of those proteins, how that gets disrupted with this longitudinal biobank. We even have the opportunity to validate those kinds of things in silico by looking at something like Alzheimer's for increased age at onset for people who've taken a certain drug. One thing that's interesting to me about BioView is that unlike some other biobanks, it's being developed and maintained within the context of an educational institution. We're collecting more humanomics data that's increasing the demand for essentially a new breed of scientists who's conversant with interacting with huge data sets, which is very different from the kind of scientific training I got when I was in my youth. How are you thinking about that in terms of your educational mission at Vanderbilt? And what type of students are you training and how are you training them to open up this new future of human data-driven discovery? Yes, it's definitely the case that computation is a bigger part of biology than it's ever been. And many more of our students are conversant in both wet laboratory science large-scale omics generation, and the analysis of that data. Although a lot of the large-scale omics data get generated in core facilities rather than individual labs. It's also a much more dynamic and fluid environment in the academic to industry partnerships. Vanderbilt is also a home for people coming from industry back into academia, especially people who really want to learn about electronic health records research. The environment of the future will certainly involve computation, a lot of big data, continued data generation in things like proteomic and metabolic spaces, not just DNA sequence. Things like transcriptomics will start to have a place in biomarker development. That will become, over time, more a part of medicine than discovery-level research. And so training people means making sure that they get education in all of these spheres and that they are also cognizant of opportunities outside academia, having a more exciting environment that includes direct collaborations with industry, more internship opportunities for our trainees, and allows people in industry to refresh their knowledge of of new things that are coming up by coming back into academia for sabbaticals. Let's say in the year 2150 that all this genetic analysis, collecting data and building databases has been going on for well over 100 years. We now have data on literally billions of human beings, and we have computers that make today's computers look like tinker toys. We could mine everything extensively. What's going to be the output of that? As a result, can we expect humans are going to be living to be 200 years old because we can treat them with all this genetically informed knowledge that we have? Not by that time. The goal is more modest. We want to understand disease processes enough to interrupt them in advance of them actually occurring. But because so many people already have disease, 
we need to learn more about the difference between the initiation of the disease and progression of disease and how we identify and repair the consequences of disease processes. The far future will be much more about disease prevention and interruption. In the near term, we have a lot to learn about disease progression, interrupting disease processes, and repairing damage that diseases have done. And that will occupy us for quite a while. I don't like to think of people living hundreds of years, but having people live their best lives while they're alive is a terrific goal to shoot for. Nancy, it's really been terrific to have a conversation with you, one of the foremost leaders in human genetics in the world today. So thank you so much for sharing your time with me and my listeners. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for listening to the Human Data Era. And thanks again to Nancy Cox, director of the Vanderbilt Genetics Institute. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Human Data Q&A webinar discussion on November 16, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. Heterogeneous disorders such as cardiovascular disease have multiple risk factors and causes. In the next episode of the Human Data Era, we'll talk to Nariman Honarpur, Vice President of Global Development at Amgen, about combining various types of real-world data to understand and develop medicines for complex diseases. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.